Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I want to start out again by reminding you that you can get a free copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, at wealthformula.com. Or you can simply text me, 44222, and type Wealth Formula, one word. Go ahead and do that. It's easy, or you can go to Amazon and buy the book. But it's a good place to start. I think some of the information in there, if you listen to this show often, is going to be basic because you're hearing me just pound away at the same stuff. But for those of you who are just starting to listen, this is a good place to start. You can also go to WealthFormula.com and pick up a copy of George Newberry's book, Burn Zones, a book everybody who's interested in becoming a big-time real estate investor ought to read. He'll send you a copy to your door if you give him your address. Uh, you can also get various downloads, lots of education there. Just check it out. Go to WealthFormula.com and download some stuff, will you? You know, rules are made to be broken. That's sort of the theme of today's show. Because when you listen to my podcast or read my book or really, you know, my widgets, a lot of my widgets, you might think, hey, this guy's, uh, you know, pretty rigid about investing. You know, after all, you know, he's got principles. He's got principles of wealth creation. You know, invest in cash flowing assets. Understand how your investments work. You know, you got to be able to write them on the back of an envelope or don't invest. Invest in real things, things that you can see, touch, and feel. Invest in things that people need. Food, water, places to live. Use the mathematical principles of wealth creation, namely velocity and leverage. Well, listen, a lot of these are incredibly important, but does that mean that every time I invest in something, I do like a checklist and make sure, like a pilot in a plane, that each one of these criteria is met? Well, no, clearly not. I mean, as you may know, I'm, for example, I'm a huge fan of the life settlement asset class. Now, if you know a thing or two about uh, life settlements, there's no monthly cash flow there. And I don't know if an insurance policy counts as something real or not. But I do know that people who are over 80 years old and have multiple health problems die. And that buying their life insurance policies at a huge discount is a pretty good bet. So in that scenario, the cards are clearly stacked in my favor as an investor, right? So when else might I consider breaking these rules, these these uh, secrets of eternal wealth? Well, I will say that over the years, you know, as my own wealth has grown, I have realized that one of the biggest principles wealthy people use to grow their own wealth is insider information. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about illegal Martha Stewart kind of stuff, right? The stuff that you're not supposed to do, you know, and you see these people from uh, Wall Street going to jail. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing people who are some of the top authorities in a given asset class, the people that make the markets or the people who are truly elite operators. Now, wealthy people follow these people and find out about things ahead of time because they know them. They get their money in early in these opportunities. And by the time the general public hears about the opportunity, there's little meat left on the bone, if any. They're fighting for the scraps. And on top of that, you might even qualify because you're not an accredited investor and the deal's only for accredited investors. So meanwhile, the insiders enjoy massive gains and might even exit their positions 
while the outsiders continue to buy up scraps. Now, here's the problem you have, or that you may have, as a high-paid professional. Tell me if this sounds like you. You make a lot of money, but not enough. Or maybe you make enough, but you don't live in that world. You know, you don't live in that world, the one I'm talking about. The way you invest, frankly, is no different than the way the poor and the middle class do. Does that sound like you? If so, understand that despite what your wealth manager, your wealth, you know, whatever, your wealth guru uh, says, you are still fodder for the market makers. You aren't an insider. You're an outsider. And you're there just to pad everybody else's pocket who's on the 18. You know, so who are these market makers anyway? It's hard to get to know these people and about these opportunities if you're not wealthy. And I bet you're thinking to yourself, hey, I kind of figured this, you know. You suspected something like this already. And I'm here to tell you that you are right. Now, I'm doing my best on Wealth Formula Podcast and through this community and everything I'm doing to help you get in on some of that unfair advantage of the wealthy. And hopefully, hopefully, you have already learned things that have opened your eyes to a whole new world. I sure hope you have. I got to tell you, I I have a lot of stuff, especially in Investor Club for the accredited investors. But hopefully, I have created tremendous value or at least giving you some ideas that you hadn't thought about or didn't know existed through this podcast. But there are some things I have to tell you that until you really start creating significant wealth and or start living in the insider's world, you're going to remain an outsider. And listen, that goes for me as well. It's not like I'm Mr. Insider Guy on everything. The thing is, there are actually layers to this insider thing. Right. So you can kind of be a little bit more of an insider than somebody else. And so, you know, it's kind of like peeling away at an onion. And, you know, I'm further in. I'm like more of an insider than most, but I've still got layers to peel away ahead of me. And here's the thing. Here's one of the things I've realized is that the deeper you get into the layers of this inside world, the advantages become even more pronounced. And that's just another reason why the wealthy continue to get wealthier over time. None of this sounds fair, right? Well, it's not. But life isn't fair. I'm sorry if it just, it isn't. And if you're, you know, if you're a burner, it just, you know, it, I'm sorry. This just doesn't work for you. And, and this is the way the world works. And this is how it thrives. What you need to do, in my humble opinion, is to focus on finding your own unfair advantages. You know, you can also protect yourself. Listen, if you know, I don't know, I don't know anybody. I don't, I don't I'm not an insider. But you can protect yourself by doing what? By sticking to the principles that I always talk about. Because if you stick to cash flow, real asset investing, velocity and leverage, if you stick to these things, you can still build wealth the old-fashioned way. You earn it, right? So anyway, today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast uh, is an interesting guy. He understands this whole concept of the insider's world well because you know, this this is very pronounced in the industry that he is uh, in, is sort of the precious metals, junior mining sector, highly volatile, but in, a, in significant insider's world for sure, you know. In fact, he understands this whole idea of insider's world well enough and, 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 and believes in it enough that he has built an entire community of outsiders, to try to make sense of what he would call sort of a bizarre world and economy in which we live. And like me, he tries to help people who are outsiders get in on some of the insider action. His name is Nick Hodge. He's the founder of Outsiders Club, and he is my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast today, and you'll hear from him when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. 
one strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Nick Hodge. Now, Nick is the founder and president of The Outsider Club uh, and investment director of Wall Street's Underground Profits and Early Advantage. Nick's co-authored two best-selling books on energy, and one of his books actually includes Energy Investing for Dummies, which is probably good for most of us when it comes to this sector. And he shares his views and uh, strategies all across the country, speaking uh, in a, where I saw him, which was the New Orleans Investment Conference, uh, the Cambridge House series of conferences, and the Money Show. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Buck, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, so I saw you at the New Orleans Investor Conference, and I was thoroughly uh, entertained and educated. So uh, it, this uh, this should be fun. So before we get too much into the economy itself, take us back a little bit. Tell us exactly about, because I mean, the big thing I think you're focused on is Outsiders Club. That's your community. Uh, what is it? Why did you start it? Yeah, it's Outsider Club. Uh, it's uh, a retail investment site for people who have a little bit of a contrarian worldview or, or even a libertarian worldview. And the reason I founded it is I started in this newsletter investment publishing space in 2007. And my assigned beat then as an assistant ed editor was the clean tech space. So I was writing a lot about wind and solar and uh, uh -huh. hydrogen fuel cells and all that stuff was really fun in 2007 uh, when I was a 23 year old kid and the solar stocks were going up on high volume you know 10% a day but then 2008 happened and all that got wiped out very quickly mm -hmm. and it sort of left me scratching my head as a young kid in the space wondering you know what happened to the market what happened to all that wealth that was destroyed where did it go and and why and so after I searched in my heart of hearts and and you know talked to my mentors and tried to really figure out what was going on in the investment world. And I gravitated, I think, as most people do when they have that come to Jesus moment, to, to real hard assets, primarily things like mineral wealth in the ground, but also, you know, forestry and timber uh, and, and ag. And so I think it was, like I say, a come to Jesus moment for, for me. And uh, I founded the Outsider Club on the back of that philosophy um, as, a, as a community for like-minded individuals that want to manage their own investments outside of the influence of the Wall Street machine and the and the DC Beltway machine and uh, that's the nutshell version yeah and i guess there's different ways to do that i mean i think the philosophy generally speaking of this show of wealth formula podcast is similar it's the idea of you know looking outside of some of the uh, mainstream things and and finding finding value where you know, where there's value to be had rather than, you know, just kind of doing the same thing and hoping you'll, you'll do better, uh, you know, when you haven't done so in the past. So, you know, one of the things you talked a little bit about, I just, I enjoyed it. So I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, when you relate your, relate to what's going on in the world right now, you do find a lot of things to be a little bit bizarre, right? So, <laughs> so you got to tell us some of those things what you th what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. The, I think the talk that that you saw in New Orleans was where to put your money in bizarro world, and I sort of gave a bunch of examples of what I've come to view as bizarro world, and I can run down a couple of those examples. Sure. The first. I mean, basically, the notion is that a lot of things that you see around you are fake. And I started with uh, the Volkswagen diesel emission scandal and how, you know, that was just completely fake. It was systemic from from the top of the management all the way down to the bottom of the company. It wasn't a clerical error. It wasn't a paperwork error. I mean, these guys, this major international multi-billion dollar company was just outright lying about their emissions data. And what happens when that's revealed to the public is the stock gets cut in half. I mean, your wealth is cut in half um, almost overnight. Uh, another example I gave is the popular 
a wristwatch type deal, the Fitbit that people wear to keep track of their steps and their heart rate and sleep patterns. And that was a publicly traded equity as well. And it was a very popular IPO. And about a year after the, the stock started trading, a report comes out that says the data that this Fitbit is generating is fake. It's, you know, it could have your heartbeat off by as much as 80 beats per minute. And so, <laughs> I mean, that's that's just yeah. fake, right? It's a device that doesn't do the one thing it's supposed to do. And, and what happens to that stock? I mean, that stock also, it, it loses 50 to 60% of your money when when that news comes out. And I mean, it just goes on. The week before the New Orleans conference, there was a big Japanese steel company called Kobe that was um, found to be um, fudging the numbers for the strength and integrity of the metals it was producing, the steel and the aluminum. And uh, this is a serious deal. I mean, that's steel and aluminum that goes into cars that you drive and planes that you fly in. And they're, and they're lying about the, the structural integrity of it. And when that news came out, the stock got uh, obviously obliterated as well. But I think my favorite example, although it's not a publicly traded equity, was this juicing company that uh, Silicon Valley had raised $120 million of venture capital for. And it was this fancy internet connected juicer that you had to buy these pouches of juice for and the machine would squeeze the juice out. Well, Bloomberg did an investigative report and found that you didn't even need the juicer to squeeze the right, packs right. of juice. You could just buy the packs of juice and squeeze them with your hand. And so it's a completely unnecessary and, of course, fake and bizarre yeah. device that has somehow roped in $120 million of capital. And, I mean, I see examples like this all the time. Those are some of the most egregious. But to me, that is just bizarre that these are companies that are – you know, promoted on CNBC and have large right. followings and their devices and their products and their data turns out to be just fake. I mean, it's crazy yeah. to me. Well, what's interesting about that, I think, is that, you know, obviously I'm very much involved with the private placement world, as are you. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the listeners of this show, particularly in, a, in my investor group. But, you know, a lot of people who are new to private placements, they tend to you know, they get a little nervous, right? Like somehow with the publicly traded stuff that they think that they're safe, that, you know, that, that for some reason, you know, that people can't fake things and create data that's not real, et cetera, uh, just because it's a pub publicly traded equity. I mean, I think that's really what this comes down to is you're saying, oh, not maybe not quite, right? I mean, it's just kind of bizarre how this stuff gets uh, gets past uh, gets past everyone, no matter where it is. Yeah, I mean, you would think that uh, either internally at these companies it would be checked, or by the regulators it would be checked, or by some government oversight body it would be checked. And yet, that's simply never the case. It seems like, I mean, take it all the way back to like the rigging of LIBOR, for example. Nobody caught that, and that's tens of trillions of loans that are tied to LIBOR, and that was manipulated successfully by uh, Deutsche Bank and, and others. So, I mean, you wonder, you know, you wonder how that happens, but then. You look at the follow-up, and it sort of makes sense, right? It's I, I look at it like the mafia. These companies get caught doing things by the government, and they just have to pay a, a portion of their ill-gotten gains as fines to the government. And the government is sort of just skimming off the top. It's like, oh, we caught you, but there's never any formal ramifications. It's just, oh, here's the fine you got to pay. Put it in our coffers, and let's move yeah, on. They've probably budgeted for those already, so – um, it's incredible. Let's let's apply some of this sort of bizarre stuff to the economy today. I mean, you've got <laughs> I mean, for a guy who's looking for bizarre things, you're probably seeing a few bizarre things going on in the economy in general. Well, I think there's a lot of bizarre things. And, and the biggest one, of course, is this unprecedented monetary experiment that we've undergone for the past half decade or so. I mean, to me, I just look at interest rates. And by definition, an interest rate is you know, supposed to return you money, some percentage of your money for taking risk or lending capital. And we live in a world where that's been completely turned on its head. We live in a, you know, a negative interest rate world. And, and somehow that's been completely swallowed as normal by the, the bulk of the mainstream investment community. And, you know, it's not hard to see why when it buoys equities to, to multi-year highs on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I see the payoff and why people support that. But at the end of the day, to me, I mean, that's the antithesis of, of what capitalism is, right? I mean, it's being it's being monkeyed with at the highest of levels uh, that control interest rates. And so to me, all things are out the window when you have a, a monetary system that has been tampered with like it has been. Yeah, I think it's very bizarre. So what is that? Where does that leave people who are? 
you know, thinking that they're investing, they're investing the same way they invested 30, 40 years ago. Right. Yeah. I think what's going to happen is ultimately there's going to be an explosion of this bond bubble. And I think that's, what's going to cause a cascade effect for, for money that is traditionally invested to say, Hey, wait a minute, let's see if we can maybe find a, a safer haven, a more traditional real asset to put that money in. And that's in my view, what's going to be a real big catalyst for real investments, hard assets like land and agricultural assets and, and mineral wealth, like precious metals, because those markets are so small and they've been ignored for so long because stocks are, are going up. Nobody has put their money in these assets that if just a tiny, tiny amount of the capital that's in, in invested traditionally moves into these spaces, uh, you could see them revalued much higher very quickly. And and that's the main catalyst I'm looking for. And that's the catalyst I'm telling my readers to look out for as well and positioning them ahead of that money moving into the traditional sectors. So for for those people who don't understand that, uh, the the idea of what's going on in the bond markets, and that's going to be a lot of people. I mean, we have a lot of high paid, smart professionals, but really aren't following the markets. Can you explain so try to explain that sort of in a, uh, you know, for dummies way uh, approach uh, of what's wrong, what's going on with the bond market and why that, uh, why you think that's going to implode. Yeah, well, let's just take Japan, for example. I'm not going to try to make up the numbers. I don't know sure. them off the top of my head. Yeah, but in Japan, yeah. you have the Bank of Japan owning, you know, it's something like over 50% of the bonds and over 50% of the equities. So you have a central bank that's owning all these assets. And, and they can't fund themselves indefinitely to do that forever. So at some point, they're not going to be able to buy the equities. And they're not going to be able to buy the bonds. And there's going to be an implosion effect. I mean, that's the that's the simplest way I can explain it. It's, it's unsustainable sustainable for um, central banks to own, to have this amount of assets, both bonds and equities, on their balance sheet. And the Fed is starting to unwind now, albeit very slowly. But I think the situation in Japan and Europe is is much more unstable. Those people, those countries aren't the reserve currencies of the world like the U.S. is. They aren't the largest stock market like the U.S. is. And so I think they'll have problems sooner than the, than the U.S. will. And so I think when you see Japan and Europe start to have problems with their central banks and bonds, I think that's the spark to let you know that this thing is starting to end badly. And what does that look like? What happens to bond prices, et cetera, then? Well, I think you see equity prices start to fall off a cliff, and and the same with bonds. I think the, the yield curve is going to invert, where you see mm-hmm. uh, short-term bonds having having higher yields than, than long-term bonds, and that's the inversion of the yield curve, and I yep. think that's that's what it begins to look like. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at, but I just want to make sure people understand the, the idea being that basically the idea, you know, is, is all that money in the bonds basically looking for a, a better place a new, to A new in. home. Yeah, a new home. Right. I mean, that's yep, effectively exactly. It. So, you know, you're, uh, you know, this invest New Orleans investor conference, which was really cool. One of the things I like about it is, is when I go there, I feel like I'm a very young man. Right. I mean, I'm, hmm. I'm, I'm 44, but I've got to be probably 20 years younger than the average participant in that, but that, in that, in that uh, audience. Um, now, and you're a really young guy. Right. So why? I mean, obviously, you have exposure from this from your time doing green energy, et cetera. But what's so exciting to you about this sector right now? Well, I think the if you're talking about precious metals, precious metals. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the cyclicality of it, you know, when I first got into this investment world in 2007, it was just at the tail end of the uranium boom then that was caused by the flooding of a, a big mine or mine to be called Cigar Lake and uranium prices went from something like 40 bucks to, to well over $100. And then after that, I saw, uh, but I wasn't yet involved in the space, I saw the gold price you know, go to its record much higher than it was now in uh, 2011 or whatever that was. And so I've seen the cyclicality of the markets and I understand the cyclicality and I think we're due for that cycle to turn. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that since 2011, gold equities across the board have lost some 85% of their value. Mm -hmm. And I mean that since Fukushima happened, um, uranium equities across the board have lost more than that, some 90% of their value. And so there's been no efficient use of capital. Nobody has gone out and looked for and found new gold and silver reserves that majors can acquire to, to replenish their reserves. And nobody's gone out there and find new sources of uranium that can supply us, you know, for the next leg of the 
of the utility cycle. And so, you know, by the definition of supply and demand, I think low prices beget higher prices. It's a line that Rick Rule uses all the time. The cure for low prices is low prices. And that means the price of the commodity has to rise to incent new discoveries and to incentivize new production to come online. And so I think in a very real way, we're at the bottom of those cycles where the the, the prices of uranium and gold and silver and things like copper have to go up to make marginal new projects economic to mine so they can be brought online. And I think that's the catalyst for, you know, much higher metals prices and and by extension for much higher uh, equity prices in the junior companies, which is the, the space I dabble in, the small mining companies that provide you leverage to that rising commodity price. Right. So, you know, I've heard a lot of people in the commodity space really kind of talk about this time that we're in is the beginning of a substantial bull market. I mean, obviously, you know, things go up and down even the course of seven, eight years, but there's something bigger happening right now. Do you agree with that? I think there's something bigger happening because it's twofold this time. On the monetary side, you have the unprecedented monetary intervention uh, from central banks that, you know, traditional gold bugs would point to as uh, a reason for gold to be higher than it is now but what i like is the is the very real thing happening in the precious metal space uh, the notion of peak gold and what i mean by that is it used to be major gold companies like barrick uh, and newmont they used to have 30 30 years of gold and silver reserves in their coffers and you know in their proven and probable reserves and they've let that slip down because the precious metals prices have been so low for so long, they haven't they haven't had the impetus uh, or the or the reason to to refill their reserves, and so they've let that number slip to somewhere down to fifteen to twenty years of reserves left. And so, what has to happen is these big gold mining companies they have to go out there and they they don't explore because they're too big to do so. They have you know their staffs are too bloated and they're too bureaucratic to go out there and have a real effective discovery program. And so what they do is they go out and buy up junior companies that own assets that have been discovered and de-risked by you know either installing infrastructure or uh, doing a preliminary economic assessment or a, a bankable feasibility study. These major miners they'll go out and they're going to acquire these smaller companies, I think, at a much faster clip. We've we've only seen it, you know, start really with a couple of, of small acquisitions in the past year or two. But I think uh, the floodgates are going to open and, and, and that's what's going to going to drive this this two pronged bull market. The the yeah. the majors needing to replenish reserves and the monetary stuff. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, you know, a lot of people stay away from this stuff, you know, the, the metals and the junior miners and that sort of thing because of, you know, obviously there's substantial volatility, right? You're talking about markets dropping 80, 85% at a time. How do you play in this market and avoid getting killed? Uh, Well, there's, there's two ways. Uh, you know, if you're talking uh, about the big companies, you can invest in companies that are less volatile. And, and then you just invest in companies that have much larger market caps in the billions of dollars, as opposed to the junior companies who have market caps in the, you know, sub 100 and much smaller sometimes. So that's one way is, you know, you, you diversify across the sector and some bigger companies that can help make it not so lumpy. But the other way, when you're dealing specifically with those risky, small junior mining stocks, is to do extreme due diligence and have uh, a network in the sector of people that have seen it before and done it before. And so that has been my saving grace, I think, over the past couple of years. And why I've been able to to recommend quality deals is uh, mentors I've had in the space that have taught me what to look for. And I'll get into some of that in a second. and the ability to to vet share structure. So so let's break down, I guess, what I've been taught is the number one most important thing is people. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's the people who are driving the project forward. And as you said, there's a lot of pitfalls in the junior mining space. I mean, Vancouver has uh, not a very good track record of making people's capital be worth more than than when they invested. They have, in fact, track record of destroying capital in the junior mining sector. And that's because a lot of these companies are what I like to call lifestyle companies. You know, they're they're in the business of of raising capital to fund their lifestyles and salaries as opposed to the really 
deliver shareholder wealth. And so you have to vet out the people that have been successful in past projects. Uh, that's the number one most important thing for me is look for people that have increased other shareholders' wealth before because those are the people that end up doing it again. And then the the second thing I always uh, harp on is share structure. And that's the most important thing when dealing with these small companies because um, it's a complex topic, but many times these companies will raise money at uh, extremely low prices, a penny a share or five cents a share, and then go out to the to the public or to the retail accredited investor crowd and, and raise money at much higher prices, 30 or 50 or 60 cents. And so to me, those deals never work because human nature is very tough to fight. And if you have large groups of of insiders in at a penny or five cents, when a stock gets to 30 or 40 or 50 cents, it's very tough for them not to sell because their gain is so large. What happens is one or more of those shareholders ends up selling into the deal and caps the upside because they're selling into the new capital that's coming in. And so it doesn't allow the, the stock to appreciate. It just creates churn. And I hate to say it, but more often than not, I find bad share structures when I get emailed a new company to look at or a new slide deck to look at than good share structures. So, you know, I want to see a nice tight share structure, as few shares out as possible. And I want to know that there's not a lot of people in at cheaper prices than I am. And if they are in at cheaper prices than I am, I either want to see, I want to see one of two things. One, that they've locked their shares up voluntarily, that they've registered those shares in their own name and they've put them in escrow or otherwise, you know, said in some legal document that they're not going to sell for X amount of time. Uh, and the second thing is, if they are in at cheaper prices, I want to see that they're participating in the same round that I'm participating in to maintain their ownership stake. So that way they're on equal they're, they're on equal footing as you. They have your, their interests are aligned with you because they're participating now at the same price. I hope that makes sense. And it's not too no, uh, you know, into the world of private placements. But those are the two biggest things I look for to, to help iron out risk for sure. No, I think uh, I think those are some things that I think in general you you can relate to private placements in general. But let's talk let's talk about that because you deal you know we we talk a lot about private placements in on this show in with regards to things real estate you know life settlement funds etc things like that. But how about in terms of 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 the types of private placements that that uh, that you do in this kind of or that you help you know consumers with advise them on uh, what uh, what are some of the advantages in getting involved in private placements as opposed to you know just buying stocks yep uh, the number one advantage in most of these private placements is that you get right off the bat you get a discount to market so I'll make up a hypothetical example uh, a stock is trading at 25 cents and the company is going to raise a couple of million bucks. Well, they can price lock with the exchange and they can do that at some percentage within the, the, the price that the stock is currently trading. So you might get to do a private placement in that 25 cent stock at 20 cents. So boom, right off the bat there, you're getting a 20% discount to market. Right. Um, the other advantage is they, they typically come with some form of, of warrant, not all deals, but many deals, private placements come with either a half warrant or a full warrant. And that gives you leverage to the future because that stock can go to zero and you don't have any more risk. But if that 25 cent stock goes to 50 cents or a dollar, you have the ability with that warrant to buy more uh, shares in the future at a discounted at a discounted price. So those are the those are the two main advantages that that I convey to readers is the discount to market and the ability to buy more in the future at a lower price. Right, right. So kind of what I, I was getting at with this is that you know I some some listeners out there are probably thinking, Buck, you know, why are you talking about a very volatile uh, area uh, buying stocks, et cetera, but you know, one of my rules of thumb is I'm just opportunistic, right? So if you uh, show me an opportunity where the cards are stacked in my favor, I'm interested. In. And and kind of what I was getting at was in this area with private placements, I really, really do like it. If you find the right, you know, community or the right, the advice, because exactly what you said, because the private placements a lot of times will have basically a fixed 
discount and you do have to hold for a period of time but what that allows you to do is potentially get in sell at some point take your risk off the table and then you've got your warrants and so effectively you've got this opportunity to create you know money out of nothing at that point that's exactly right they call it you know they call it clipping the clipping the warrant or whatever like it's a coupon so right. you recoup your original investment capital by selling the shares that you got in that private placement and then you can potentially use that capital at some point down the road like you say to exercise those warrants to create almost money out of nothing and i will say uh, you mentioned that there's a hold a hold period and yes that typically is the case you have to hold these shares for 4 months and that's because they're filed without a prospectus that's what makes them a private placement. Um, they're, they're done privately without the public fi filing of a prospectus. But in some cases, not very often, but I've been involved in a couple of deals, private deals that are filed with a prospectus. And in that case, you don't have to wait the four months. So you're free to sell the shares either when the deal closes or if it's a private company that's going public either via IPO or some other transaction like a reverse takeover, you can sell those shares the day the deal closes or IPOs. And that's only if they file a prospectus. But that would just be another advantage you know, to your previous question. Um, if you don't have to hold the shares for four months, then that's even a better advantage. Right, right, absolutely. And I Obviously, on top of that, the fixed discount is huge, right? I mean, if you're getting a 20%, you know, haircut, you, you know, you're, you're, you're taking 20% right away, uh, it certainly mitigates a lot of the risk. But it's certainly something for people who are, who are interested to think about to get involved with in this area, which I think a lot of, a lot of the experts think we're, you know, we're really heading into a bull market. How can you get involved with without just being another person buying stocks and so on and so forth? One thing I do want to point out is that there are so many of these, you know, these services out there, and you can comment on this, but you got to be really careful because they're they're designed, uh, they're sort of what we would call the pump and dump uh, factories, right? where they'll tell you to buy a bunch of stuff and just as, you know, if they have enough listeners listening to them, they'll buy, everybody will buy, the price will go up if it's a small cap stock and then all of a sudden uh, the people who are advising it are the ones who are selling the stock and taking the gains. They're, cre they're creating a liquidity event for themselves, right? Right, uh, right? And that's definitely something that you have to look out for. I would always read the fine print of that, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page of the blog or the newsletter or whatever it is and see. I mean, they have to disclose if that's the case, either if they're being paid to put out the recommendation or that rosy report, they have to disclose that. And um, if they own shares, they have to disclose that as well. And I think that's what sort of sets me apart from from some of those services is that one I never get paid to to recommend a stock um, or to to generate a positive report about a stock I only make money from the sale of subscription receipts to my newsletter readers and the other is um, I'm often participating and I tell you this alongside you so I'm literally yeah. I'm eating my own cooking as they like to call it I'm, I'm I'm participating in that same deal that I'm advising you participate in so it's not like I'm an armchair quarterback in that respect it's yeah. I'm actually playing the game what kind of track record have you had in the last couple of years it's been quite positive. So it, just the private placements uh, exclusively, not the stock recommendations. We've done something like 40 of those placements, 80, 80% uh, of those ha have been winners. And I, I'm not looking at my portfolio, but off the top of my head, at least a dozen of those have been triple digit winners or better, uh, including one that was a 1400% gain. So, um, I think the track record is quite good. I, I bet the deals my, myself. I bet the deals with my with my network. And like I say, I only make money if my subscribers make money because then they renew. And right. I don't take money from the companies, so I got to perform. Yeah, and this is definitely one of those areas that you really want to surround yourself with. You know, people who know what they're doing and advice uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, certainly. Uh, I would highly recommend if this is of interest to you to, to check out Nick's blog. Now, you've also, I mean, you've you've written a little bit, and I found it was interesting that it sounds like you're somewhat in, involved with the marijuana industry. Is that right? Yeah, we've done a couple of private placements in uh, the cannabis space. And mm -hmm. we also, uh, inside of the Outsider Club, we have a number of paid newsletters that cover different sectors. And one of my editors... Uh, writes a dedicated cannabis letter called the marijuana manifesto. I think it's very early days in that sector for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are those, do you do private placements on that too? 
Yeah, we've done, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention individual companies, but yeah, we've done some private placements with um, some very real companies. I mean, companies that are some of the biggest growers in in Canada. We haven't gotten too much into the U.S. yet just because it's not legal at the federal level. But I suspect that it's going to be, you know, my analogy is actually is the gay marriage analogy. It was legalized mm-hmm. by one state, Massachusetts first, and then a couple of other states followed on. And then about a 10 years later, there was a Supreme Court case that deemed same-sex marriage legal federally. I think that the, the marijuana space is going to follow a similar trajectory. You've got a handful of states that have legalized it in a recreational capacity now. California is now just about to go legal recreationally. And all these other states um, are really getting jealous of the tax revenue that they're generating sure. and so you'll start to you'll start to see these other states follow follow suit and then there'll be some supreme court case or some uh congressional or presidential uh decision that allows it to become legal federally and so i think uh, i mean that's literally the end of prohibition uh, yeah. not of marrow not of uh, alcohol but of cannabis and yeah. so if you look back at the fortunes that were made at the end of alcohol prohibition it's just going to be rinse and repeat i think for cannabis yeah you know it's it's interesting you say that i've used the exact same analogy um, and I've said the same thing. I think the tricky thing that I found with cannabis, because, you know, frankly, again, I'm, you know, I am uh, agnostic when it comes to an asset class. And, and you know, some people have issues with cannabis. Frankly, I, I don't really care. And I, I agree with you. I think it's the end of prohibition. And we're going to, you know, eventually there will be people who come out who, who, you know, 20, 30 years from now, there'll be the Budweiser, the Miller, the Coors of, of, of the pot industry, and people are sitting on the sidelines and, and you know, wishing it would go away. It's just not going to happen. So you might as well potentially look at, at ways to make money. You know what? Funny you're thing see, is, you're seeing that happen right now. I don't mean yeah. to interrupt, but sure. you're, you're seeing that you're seeing that happen right now. It was just last week or the week prior that uh, Constellation Brands, which is the company that um, is responsible for the distribution of Corona beer in the United States, they took a major equity uh, position in a company called Canopy Growth which is one of the biggest canopy or one of the biggest cannabis growers in Canada. And so uh, that's the first shot over the bow, right? Just like you say, the major yeah. beer brands are saying, Hey, wait a minute, we don't want people smoking dope and not drinking beer. So let's get in on this. You yeah. Know? And they'll probably drink more beer if they smoke. <laughs> uh, who knows? I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I know they're, I, I know they're fearful. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is that part of the same newsletter? The, the private placements are, uh, yeah, in the cannabis space, I do them through a service called Nick's Notebook. But if you want to buy uh, retail shares of cannabis stocks, we have a, a letter just for that called the Marijuana Manifesto. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So if you, yeah, it's funny because, you know, Nick, I was about to say is that I've looked into some of these. I've had some people email me because they know I'm always looking for stuff. And one time I had an opportunity um presented to me i thought it sounded really interesting actually so the guy actually comes he says he wants to come and visit me so he comes uh, this is when i lived in chicago and we met him at a starbucks and it was just it was like i mean i couldn't even believe this the guy comes in and it was it was like you know i think he was stoned for one thing <laughs> and he had his his hat was on sideways and he was totally i mean it was just it was just unbelievable and it, it could have been a great opportunity but i mean who knows i mean this is a this is a you know an industry with some shady characters and uh and so you don't know i mean that if you're looking for a great opportunity there's uh uh there, there may be one there but you have to you have to look through you know you have to look through a lot of stuff now if you let me ask you this if you had a hundred thousand dollars to invest right now you know given where uh you know i'm not talking about any particular investment but um but generally, broadly speaking, what would you do with it, given where you think the economy is going to be in a couple of years? Are you talking about sort of a mainstream investment? Or are you talking about no, anything, like speculative, anything. Like speculative capital? Well, if you had $100,000 and say you want to allocate it to, to some things that might be mainstream, might be, you know, might be speculative, what would you do? Yeah, I'm 100% convinced that the uranium market is going to have a very long and sustained uh, bull market period uh, quite soon. Uh, just last week, the, the one of the largest uranium producers in the world, Cameco, announced that they're cutting production by 10%. 
Uh, and we saw nearly a 20 to 30 percent gap up in all uranium equities across the board. That was no real movement in commodity price, no real movement in uh, actually supply or demand, just an announcement that a company is going to cut supply next year. So that just shows you how ripe that market is. I said earlier in this podcast that uranium equities were debased 90 percent across the board since Fukushima. I mean, for me as a, as a contrarian, uh, that's uh, as a sure bet as it gets. I mean, uranium supplies 10% of the world's baseload electricity. It does so in a clean way with no emissions. Um, so if we're really looking toward the electrification of the grid, the electrification of uh, cars and internal combustion motors, you, you can't, as much as I love solar and wind, you can't sustain that transition with just solar and wind unless you have a major revolution in batteries because you mm -hmm. have to be able to store that energy cheaply enough to make it economic to charge all the batteries. And right now, nuclear is the only way to do that. So if you're giving me $100,000 and I'm picking one sector, I think I'm going to invest in the best of breed uranium producers and juniors that own high quality assets run by quality uh, quality people fantastic so nick you want to let us know where can we learn more tell us about all the different things you got because there's the you know there's some notebooks there's blogs yeah if you just go to outsiderclub.com, www.outsiderclub.com, everything is right there. You can sign up for free daily editorials. We'll send those to you seven days a week. Or if you click the publications button, you'll see a list of all the paid publications we have uh, that cover different sectors of the stock market and give specific recommendations by our editors. Uh, I think the one that probably is 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 um, – most useful for your audience is, like you say, the Nix Notebook service, and that's where I exclusively vet and share with my small group of accredited investors uh, private placements that I consider worthy of, of putting your capital in. Sounds great. Nick Hodge, thank you very much for being on the show. Buck, that was a lot of fun. I certainly appreciate it. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that show. So this whole concept of outsider versus insider is true, my friends. Now, if you can't become an insider, though, you're probably thinking to yourself, all right, okay, I get it. What's the show? What's the point? I'm not going to become an insider anytime soon. How do you get an unfair advantage anyway? Well, we talked about, for one thing, stick to your stick to your basics, right? All the principles of wealth building that we talk about, you know, real assets, cash flow, investing in things with leverage and velocity. You know, that's one thing. Stick to that. But also, you know, as you know, I have advocated many times to invest within your tribe. Create a tribe. When you do this, when you're part of a tribe, when you're part of a group of people with common goals, common belief systems, different skill sets and knowledge and 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 you know different experiences. When you do this, you can leverage the knowledge of everyone around you, create checks and balances for investment opportunities and sponsors. You know, you know, you know what people are doing well in. So why reinvent the wheel? I mean, just just take the ride for yourself. In a way that, you know, that building of the tribe is essentially the same kind of thing that I'm talking about here with insiders and outsiders. They're just, you know, the ultra wealthy, they're just more refined tribes. They're they're just dealing with higher sums of money and they attract, you know, bigger, they deal with people who are, are positioned, you know, in, in places that can make things even more dramatic. So that's certainly something you can do. And certainly, you know, check out, check out Nick's um, Outsider Club thing too. You might, you know, you might really like it. And, and he has, you know, his own approach to this, which I think might be a benefit to people, particularly if this whole idea, the energy or the uh, precious metal sector and commodities appeals to you, which, it, you know, it certainly does appeal to me. Um, 
and that's another show entirely, but but I will talk about that some other time. Now, I do want to point out, now again, for those of you thinking, how am I going to get this tribe? How Where do I even start? You know, I'm kind of on an island here. In Q1 of this year, I'm going to be releasing a course. And I don't know if I've talked about this yet, but it's going to be called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. And uh, I'm going to be, it's super exciting, actually. There's going to be some just fantastic faculty on this, et cetera. And then... That is going to lead into the Wealth Formula Network, which will be the online forum where all of you can connect. And that's where you can start working on your tribe. Now, also remember for those of you who are accredited investors, and an accredited investor, of course, is somebody who makes $200,000 per year, $300,000 if filing jointly, or has a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. They made that one because of California, by the way. Then you are an accredited investor. You don't have to sign up for anything or, or, you know, fill out an application or whatever. That's You just are. You know, it's like being pregnant or not pregnant. You just are. And if you meet those criteria as an accredited investor, you can join my investor club, which is my tribe. Just go to wealthformula.com and click on the investor club icon. Now, finally, if you like the show, if you like it, if you're a listener, can you please do me a favor? Go to iTunes, express yourself. Give me a five-star review and you know, make sure that you subscribe to the show if you're not already subscribed. The reason I ask you to do that is because that helps the show climb in the rankings. And when the show climbs in the rankings, it helps me continue to have the leverage. You notice I like leverage, right? To bring high-quality guests to this program and continue to bring high-quality guests to this program. You know, there's, there's at this point, you know, there we've had some pretty spectacular people. So it's not like we're trying to climb higher. We're just trying to, we're just trying to get more, more. We just want to be able to get anybody we want. And, and the key is just to continue to plug away. Uh, we've got a great listenership. I appreciate you all very, very much. And anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Chavri for Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.